0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. I have a theory that comes both from experience and just listening to folks talk about their spiritual life or lack of spiritual life for a long time. And the theory is this, that most of us struggle to pray simply because we don't know how that most of us struggle to pray because we don't know how to pray, which leaves prayer feeling hard. It leaves prayer feeling foreign. It leaves prayer feeling maybe even unimportant. It leaves prayer even feeling guilt-ridden. The only emotion we have towards prayer is, man, I, I probably should be doing more, right? And that drains our joy. It drains our encouragement. It drains our motivation to pray. See, I imagine a vibrant prayer life is like this. It's like a great tree reaching up into the heavens. The years of prayer are piling on each other and the branches are like the answers to prayer so that when you see like a a great red oak in the neighborhood or a magnificent magnolia, it's kind of this picture of a lifelong cultivation of a relationship with God, bearing fruit and flowering year after year after year. That would be a vibrant mountain of prayer. And in that framework, I think most of us have something more like a prayer house plant. It's like a snake plant that the store said, you you can't kill it, it'll be fine. And most of us are pretty ashamed of the snake plant, and that we kind of forget to put it in light and water it anyways. Whether your prayer life is more like a redwood or more like that snake plant, I have really, really good news today. I have the best news in the history of the world that Jesus is kind and gentle towards you. How do I know? Because the disciples had been with Jesus for years at this point. They hadn't gotten called like last week. Years of miracles, years of teaching, years of travel. They're on the way to Jerusalem, to the cross. The story is reaching its end here. And finally, they ask Jesus, who, by the way, prays in basically every adult chapter of his life till now. It's not like Jesus hasn't been demonstrating and living a prayer life. He's been doing this all the time. And they ask, Lord, teach us to pray, which means it's okay for you to just say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. They wouldn't ask to be taught unless they just came to the conclusion they they didn't know it is unnatural to talk to an invisible God. It's a learned behavior. Our children don't need a lot of teaching on eating. They just eat. They don't even need a lot of teaching on playing. Children who've never seen other children play will just play. There's something in the wiring, but your children aren't just going to pray. If you walk through those stages, I've had the delight to do it It takes years of modeling and cultivating and teaching to finally get your child to earnestly say a prayer that's not wrote or just from the heart of something that maybe they didn't even talk to you about that day. And it's a beautiful moment when they start to have this own prayer life, but it teaches us it's not natural. It must be learned. So our glorious Jesus, he actually teaches us. And while it's okay not to know how to pray, it's not okay to stay that way. Because here's what's happening. When you feel low competence, low understanding in something, it leads to low confidence. If you don't understand how something works, you're probably not really confident to do it. And if you're not confident to do it, you're probably not gonna practice it consistently. I'll prove it to you, this is a great one, with cooking. If you don't know how to cook, your confidence to try cooking is low which means you're ordering takeout again. (laughs) That's just how it works. But if you acknowledge, I don't know how to cook, and then you take a step to say, I'm gonna watch a YouTube, I'm gonna rent that book from the library, I'm gonna ask a friend, I'm gonna shadow somebody, I'm gonna try an easy recipe from the New York Times or wherever else, and you gain a little bit of confidence will lead to a growing confidence, and then one day a consistent practice where you're cooking all the time but you're not just gonna jump from not knowing how to just six days a week, just cooking awesome recipes. But most of us think like, man, I I can't believe I'm not a master chef. I've never cooked. And it's like, but we know that in life, but we struggle in prayer to see, hey, there's gonna be a learning curve. It's not insurmountable. We're not climbing Everest, but a lot of us don't know how to pray for a lot of different reasons. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that didn't emphasize prayer. Maybe it just... You're just, you just don't know how. Today's a day to fix these things. I want your confidence to build as we learn a model for prayer that makes your confidence grow to soon you are consistently praying and starting to have more than a snake plant. Does that sound good to y'all? It sounds good to me. Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. That's what this is called. It's a shorter version. There's a little bit longer version in Matthew. And the Lord's Prayer, I'm gonna say there's a model here called HEAT. H-E-A-T. HEAT. And the only thing that matters is that the H comes first. The rest of the letters, you can swap them now. I'll teach you why the H comes first. But HEAT, because I want you to remember the themes. You can pray the Lord's Prayer. That's an amazing prayer to pray. But I also would like you to see what the Lord's doing here to cultivate a prayer life in your soul. Look how the Lord says. He just answers them. Verse two. And he said to them, when you pray, There's an expectation that his followers pray. If you're not praying, you are missing out. The snake plant is missing out. There is a life more than the snake plant. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So the first letter would be H in heat, and it's for honor God first. Honor God first. Now we don't use the word hollowed very much, so I switched it to honor, because hallowed means to honor, to holy, to see the ultimateness of a thing. And Jesus is inviting us to say, start prayer with acknowledging who you're talking to. It's not a give-take. God isn't praying back to you. He's not asking requests of you as if you are also God. It's a needy child to a father we need. And so to acknowledge that God is the only holy God is a great start to prayer. Because if we're not honoring God, if our request doesn't honor God, then we have no business praying for it. It sounds simple, but it happens all the time that we're praying for things that don't honor God or we're not praying in a way that's reverent towards God. Now we can be relaxed when we pray because through the gospel, we're a member of the family and we are a friend of God, but we can't lose track of who we are actually praying to because we don't make God obey us. That's not what prayer's for. That's paganism. That's magic. That's magic to pray to the divine, to hope to manipulate it to our will so that they obey and do our wishes. Christian prayer is aligning ourselves to God's will with our hands out and open for his help. We're saying, Lord, I want your kingdom, not mine. Lord, I wanna honor your name, not mine. And here's the ways I need help, or it's not gonna get done, or I can't do it. Therefore, if God's honor isn't coming first, then we're just heading in the wrong direction. The the rest of the prayer, it it ain't gonna matter because we've taken the wrong road. Honor comes first and half-hearted prayer starts with a half-addressed God. When we address God with reverence, true prayer begins. We're at the table with our Lord, which leads to E, the E of heat. Experience the gospel. Church, we don't outgrow the gospel. Following Jesus is an ongoing experience of repentance and faith. And it leads to the experience of God's forgiveness over and over and over. That's what he's saying. We are forgiving others as we've been forgiven. And we're not we're saved by the gospel in the moment. This is a sanctifying work of the gospel to see our sin more clearly and deeply and then enjoy the gospel more clearly and deeply As we live. See, God wants to talk about you in prayer. A lot of times we skip this, and this is why prayer seems kind of unimportant. We kind of address God and then skip to all sorts of things. And that's fine. We're praying for the kingdom. We should pray about everything that God would possibly care about. Good. But if we skip in here, if we skip actually the gospel for us, if we skip our actual spiritual interaction with God on the most important things, our following of Jesus, then what are we really praying about? We can easily start thinking we're pagans manipulating God instead of receiving from God and letting that flow through our life. And we see this in Luke 18. The Pharisee comes to God. He brags in prayer about many things, and God is completely unimpressed. But a tax collector comes, he brings his heart to God, he acknowledges his sin, he beats his breast, and that man leaves close to God and forgiven. Be the tax collector. See that prayer is a time to commune with God over the most important things. We are the people of $10 billion of our sin towards God has been forgiven, so we can forgive 20 bucks of everybody else. It may be hard, But the only power we have to forgive others is seeing how we've been forgiven. You will never will yourself into being a good enough person to forgive anyone truly. You'll always say, yeah, I'm better than you. I forgave you. That's how the world forgives. The Christian says, I'm not better than you. I've been forgiven, so I'm forgiving. Way different paradigm of what forgiveness and how it actually works. But I want us to remember, forgiving others doesn't save us. I've people have read this this prayer and this passage and and came away with forgiving others saves us. But no, forgiving others doesn't save us. Instead, it's a sign of God's grace in your life. And I want to slow down here, because some of you may say, like, of course it doesn't, but there's a lot of bad teaching in the world. Especially in the South, it hangs around like smog. And it sounds something like this, and this is absolutely wrong. If you are a believer in Jesus and you sin. But before you can repent in prayer, you die in a car wreck. You are not going to hell for the lack of repenting there. You're absolutely not going to hell for your lack of repenting of that sin. We are saved by grace, not even by our works of continual repentance. The prayer of repentance and faith, remember, is an ongoing work of sanctification, not salvation. Whoever puts their faith in Christ is united with Christ fully and unbreakably. You are saved not just with a clean record, but you're actually united and part of the family of God. The ongoing repentance and faith is that we would enjoy Jesus greater and grow more holy over time. It's not as if, oh man, I, have a, I, I sinned, I didn't have time to pray and now I'm, I, I died and, and, and now it's the connection with God's broken. That's not it. And anyone who's taught you that is flatly wrong and does not understand the gospel, nor the Bible, nor God himself. And I know some of you may say, man, whoa, we're undoing a lot of stuff. And others, you're like, I've never thought that way. But I've just, it runs into enough that I have to say as we teach here that we must understand that nothing, not even our sin can take away our salvation from us. He who trusts in Christ is saved on the basis of Christ. Amen? The A, the A in heat. Because of that bond with God, we can ask. It's the A of heat. Ask for present needs. Jesus wants you to come to him with whatever is on your mind. Whatever's on your mind, he wants to know. You are not uh, boring him, he is not too busy. No matter if your, your earthly father or mother was too busy or, or, or bored of you in whatever way. No, if it's on your mind, God wants to know, including even what you eat. Remember their context. They had uh, an uncertainty of meals. They had the food for today and they'd have to make it again tomorrow. There's no refrigerators, there's no supermarkets. They had a closer feel of the scarcity and abundance of food. So this prayer felt near and dear to their heart. And Jesus wants us to see everything in our mind and even stuff that's not on our mind, like our need for bread or water, shelter, oxygen. Jesus wants us to see God provides all those things. And that's kind of the part of the pandemic no one ever references. If you'll notice in the story of people say, what'd you do during the pandemic? No one ever references the terrifying moment where the first time in our generation, our parents' generation, walked into a grocery store and there was nothing in it. We don't reference it because it's too eerie to really consider how delicate and fragile the supply systems of the world actually are. But in that moment, it snapped in this awareness like, God, I need daily bread. I take a lot of what's going on for granted, and it keeps me from prayer because I believe I am self-sufficient. I believe I'm a little God, and I control it all, and wise decision-making will get me all the way home. And that's not what Jesus says is spirituality. In fact, that's kind of like Adam's sin talking, that I'm self-sufficient, I make the rules, and everything will be fine. Instead of God actually loves me, I can depend on him. Thankfulness is my way forward. God knows what you need and will provide everything you need in life for faithfulness. And he wants us to talk about what's on our mind and acknowledge him as the provider. And this line is a callback to Exodus, that where God led them out of slavery in Egypt and through the desert, he provided food and manna, bread, daily bread, Provided water, even provided meat. They did this that they would learn dependence as they go. God wants your prayer life to be a learned dependence. That as the journey goes on, the tree gets bigger as you see answer to prayer and answer to prayers, each new leaf and branch sprouting in your heart. And finally, Jesus models. Jesus's model says we should pray against temptation. It's the tea of heat, temptation. Now, family, this might be wild stuff for you, but the Bible would say you are in spiritual war all the time with an enemy who hates you and wants you back in bondage to sin. His goal to take glory away from God is to lure you back into sin and that you would think, I'm free, I'm doing whatever I want, God. Instead, it's actually slavery that we're shackling ourselves to our sin and it controls us. Because at its heart, this is what sin is. It's saying that thing, that person, that thought is better than God, better than faithfulness to God's ways. That's what sin is. It's choosing to trust whatever it is over the ways and person of God. And Jesus is telling us that we should ask for help. We are not on our own. And that's the good news. You are actually not on your own. You feel like you're losing the war. You're winning the war. You feel like you had a good day or a good week, good month, good year, or a terrible month, week, or year. You are not alone. In fact, in Luke, Jesus will pray for Peter not to fall into temptation. Jesus is a willing prayer partner with you. Hebrews 7.25 says this. Jesus is praying this for you right now. Therefore, God is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Jesus lives forever to intercede. That's fancy for pray with God on their behalf. If you are in Christ, Christ is praying for you right now to win the war and your daily battles of sin. Instead of letting your sin make you guilt-ridden and run from God, sin should be your opportunity to run to God. Look at it in the Gospel of Luke. Every sinner that comes to him, that comes to him humbly, Jesus throws their, his arms around them. Don't run when you sin, run to God. Don't run away, don't hide it, don't bury it, but come to him. Jesus is accepting sinners. Jesus is healing sinners. Jesus is helping sinners overcome what plagues them. And how encouraging it just to see mentally that Jesus is praying for me in heaven. If you wonder what God's up to, he's praying for you. Luke 15 is gonna teach us when we repent of any sin, heaven's throwing a party, not just for salvation. Every victory you have over the darkness, light is shining in heaven. That all of heaven goes, wow, God has changed that person and is changing them over and over in every way. All of heaven is cheering you on to say yes to God and no to sin. So if you feel at war with sin, which everyone I know is at war with sin, including myself, pray earnestly for God's help. It's a humble thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. Pray with the honor of God in mind. Pray experiencing the gospel is growing you deeper. Pray for every present need and pray for help in temptation. And I, I did a silly pun with heat, you know, to make you hot for God and hot for prayer. And I did it because I want you to remember it. I, I, want, I want us to have more snake plants and maybe maybe the snake plants can get upgraded to a monstera that needs more light, guys. If, if you're going to make the move, you need more light for the monstera. It's just a thing. And I pray that one day your monstera gets so big, it becomes a great magnolia in the yard. Now, it doesn't work like that in science, But come on, fam, we're in the supernatural. (laughs) You can go from snake plant to monstera to bang. Look at that magnolia. That's my hope. If Citizens is gonna have a hundred year future, whether you or the people who come after you or your children, we're not gonna make it there on our own. And I wouldn't want to. Your prayer life is vital for you Everyone you've ever met, this church, Birmingham, America, the world. And God is inviting you gently and kindly to say, hey, start with just saying the Lord's prayer. He told us to pray it. It's a great prayer. (laughs) Go with the themes. Expand into praying scripture, praying with a friend saying, can I pray at community group? Being the first person to pray and just start growing because as your competence grows, your confidence will grow. And as your confidence grows, consistent practice will follow. You can get on the train today and change the trajectory of your life. Jesus says, when you pray, he wants to meet you in prayer. And that's why he gives us more than just a model. Jesus gives us the most wonderful of motivations. And what is a strange story to our ears? Look what the Lord says in verse five. Jesus said to them, what a great line. Which of you has a friend? Which of you has a friend? And we'll go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. They're like little rolls back then. For a friend of mine has just arrived from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. This is a friend in the house. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. They would put a big wooden bar on the back of a door. Locks, too confusing. Bar. My children are with me in bed. These are one room, maybe two room houses if you fancy. Probably one room with a little loft that you climbed up in and everyone slept on the loft so the cool air could run beneath you and the animals lived under you in a stall. He's saying, hey, the is shut. My kids are in bed. I, I can't get up and give you anything. Now, Jewish hospitality was a big deal. It was not seen just as your responsibility, but your whole community's responsibility to welcome every guest. That you would bring shame and a shame on our community culture on your whole town, on your community, on your synagogue. So if you had a guest, especially if they're traveling a long way, you must provide them something to eat. Remember, there's no fast food. Food's very perishable. It would bring tremendous shame to not show your guest hospitality. So receiving a neighbor... Uh, So if you had nothing and you went to a neighbor, maybe the guest was unexpected. Maybe they came late at night. Maybe their crew was bigger than you thought when they rolled in. It is very natural to then go to a friend, go to a neighbor, and ask for help. And the friend, he initially doesn't help, but instead just complains. And to be honest, we're meant to see these complaints as weak. (laughs) I'm lying down is basically what he's saying. He hears them. The room is, you know, about as big as this half of the stage, so the, the distance to the door is not great. Pulling a, a bar off the back of the door is not a Herculean effort, and of course there's kids in bed. That That's a normal thing. It's not a modern thing, of like, oh, don't wake the baby. Man, they live in a silent town together. Kids are crying throughout the night throughout the town, okay? So this is kind of, he's offering up these weak complaints, and it communicating that he's just a grouchy friend. He's a reluctant, grouchy friend. Maybe he's lazy. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's grouchy like me in the mornings. But the point of the story, amen, the point of the story is verse eight. I tell you, though he, the man inside, will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, but because of his impudence. In order to avoid shame, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, a lot of times it's been translated persistence as if the person asking, because he keeps knocking, he'll get up. But that's actually not here. It never mentions the man knocking again. In fact, it's actually keeping the same pronoun that's the man not because they're friends, but because of his shame, this persistent shame that might come that he would be the friend who doesn't give people bread when he had bread, that the guy knocking would have to go to another neighbor and be like, oh yeah, Bob didn't give me bread. Can you give me bread, Dave? That he would then be shamed as the bad neighbor, the bad friend, for that reason, in their honor-shame culture, this guy is gonna get up and give him the bread even though he doesn't want to. Which makes the point of the story this, even a questionable friend will get up because of shame and give you what you need. How much better of a friend do we have in Jesus who's not questionable, who delights in our asking, in our seeking, in our knocking? Jesus isn't a questioning, uh, questionable or unstable friend. He's not motivated by honor or shame. Instead, we pray because God is listening. Prayer doesn't work if God isn't listening. Prayer doesn't matter if God isn't listening. Look how Jesus describes how prayer works. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. He's a friend who's coming to the door without giving you lame excuses. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion? Let that stir in your heart for a moment. That God's not here to trick us, but to help us. He's not evil. He's not a grouchy friend. He's a generous father. We continue to pray because God is answering. We must understand this to take God seriously. We must understand that God is not grouchy but generous. That He's listening. He's answering. But I do want us to consider: How does God answer my prayers? Because we've all been there. Like God, what what are you doing? You say, you say if. I seek, I will find. If if I knock, it'll be open. But what do you do when maybe your prayers aren't answered the way you thought? Because to take God really seriously, we have to take seriously what the answers actually are, right? We can't just wish it away or, or, or sentimentalize. We have to reckon with, if God hears every prayer and answers every prayer, well, what about the prayers that, that don't go so high? What about the unanswered questions? So God can answer our prayers in the same way that we can answer each other. There's a yes, there's a no, and there's a wait. The yes of God is when you are aligned with God, you're in sync with the spirit, we ask and boom, it just happens. It's a glorious feeling when you offer something to God in prayer and you feel maybe that week, that day, an answer from God. And this is one of the joys why I encourage journaling. You want to grow that snake plant on Monstera? Take up journaling, writing prayers down, putting them on the fridge. The more specific the prayer, the more specific you can see the answer. And the more specific the answer, more likely and more passionately, you're probably gonna give glory to God for the answer because you can see a clear chain of what happened. That's the yes. And a comfort to you, even if you don't know what to pray, it's actually okay. Prayer time isn't quiz time. Romans 8.26 tells us this, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, God himself, intercedes, prays for us with groanings too deep for words. It's great to have specifics, but it's okay not to have specifics. It's okay just to be with God and express yourself fully because we're not magicians trying to manipulate God. We don't have to go long. We don't have to babble with big words. We don't have to be repetitive. Jesus warns against all this in Matthew 6. But rather, we're having a conversation with a God who loves us. So what do we do with the no? Or what a no really is, it's a yes, but the yes is so different that it feels like a no anyways. Either we ask about the wrong thing, which happens all the time. When you read the Gospel of Luke, people come up with questions for Jesus, and Jesus kind of, instead of answering the wrong question, often answers the right question for them back to them. Sometimes we're asking stuff that, yeah, it's a no. Sometimes the no comes because we ask without really honoring God. We skip the H. James 4.3 is this. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That's why honoring God does come first. You can swap the other letters around. But there is a moment that we must remember who we're talking to and why we're talking to. There's country songs abounding of thanking God for unanswered prayers. And unanswered prayers are really just no's. But do you trust God that a no from God is actually a good thing? That's why those songs ring true and are popular. But some of the no's are actually the best and good thing. We don't know what we really need, nor do we know the details fully of God's best plan. God wants to talk with us anyways through his yeses and no's because that's a relationship with God. The living God is a living person. But I think the most formative of the yes and the no's is actually wait. I believe this third category is where the most spiritual work gets done in us, that we have these desires that God has brought up in us. That's why we're praying them. And that God has told us we must wait, because nothing is harder than waiting, right? Especially for an impatient person. Just me, right? None of y'all. Waiting does something to us. Waiting and continuing to pray, it defines what we're really asking for. We start to really consider what am I actually asking for? And it refines our heart motives as we ask. The waiting is not wasted time, and I'll prove it to you, even if it feels desperate. Consider Abraham of Genesis, promised a son. 25 years flowed on by. 25 years not 25 days, not 25 months, 25 years of praying and obeying and like, what are you doing, Lord? Israel under slavery of Pharaohs for 400 years until they're delivered by their cries of prayer. David waits 15 years between the period of him being anointed and told he would be king to when he's actually king, and a whole lot happens in between. But this guy is out there writing psalms in the desert and praying and singing to God the whole time. And it forms him to be the king he should. Abraham is formed to be the person who sees that God's promises are going to come true. Israel learns dependence on God that God will actually deliver them. And we see this in Jesus' life and in the Gospel of Luke. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi that makes predictions about Christ. From him to the birth of Jesus is another 400 years. The scriptures have been silent to the people of God for 400 years. And some of the first characters we meet in the Gospel of Luke are Anna and Simeon in the temple praying, waiting for the salvation of God. The waiting is not wasted. Instead, it's preparing you for whatever God's answer will be. Now, he may define it and redefine you so much that the answer is far different than what you originally prayed, but God hears you. He hears you. He's not the friend. He doesn't need to be convinced. Instead, he's gonna open the door. It might be different than you think. It might be longer than you think but the time is not wasted. And the deepest refining will take us to the final motivation of prayer in this passage. Verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Jesus wants to give you God himself. Whatever all of our other needs are, what we need the most is God himself. We need him more than anything else. Jesus came to die for sinners, not just to wipe the slate clean of guilt, but to bring us home, to bring us into God's family where we can rightfully call God father and dad. Jesus is the one who invites us to pray, but he's also the reason we can pray. Jesus is the one who hollowed God's name. Jesus came to give us bread, both spiritually and physically. Jesus is the reason for our forgiveness and ability to forgive others. Jesus is our only hope to make it home, to walk the narrow road and avoid temptation. And Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit in salvation. And look what the Spirit gives us the right to do. This is Romans 8.15 but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba. That's the Aramaic word for dad. Abba, father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Our motive for prayer is that God lives inside us and prompts us to pray and gives us the right to call him father, our common father. The one who understands, whether they're yeses or nos or waits, they say, and even if you can't trace what God's doing, you can trust who he is. The point of our life isn't to figure out why all the things happened. It really isn't. On the other side of heaven, we'll know. But on this side of heaven, sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. But we are growing to trust a father who only does good. He doesn't give rotten eggs. The other day I got my first rotten egg. It was super gross. I just, right into the pan, vomit inducing. He doesn't do that. If we ask for an egg, we're not getting a snake. If we ask for a fish, we're not getting a stone. If you've been disappointed in your prayers, and your yeses, and your noes, and your waits. Continue to trust a God who loves you, that put his spirit in you to cry out, Father, and won't you won't be a fool because you're a part of his family. We can pray to God as Father because we're not strangers, but sons by the Spirit. Whether your earthly father was great or not so great, Jesus teaches us that we can trust this father because he's perfect. That Jesus trusts him so much that when he dies on the cross and is abandoned by God, Jesus knows he'll be resurrected from the dead. That the promises to Jesus extend past the grave and back to life. And that is why we can trust this God because he loves us to the end. Our motivation to pray is that God loves us he listens, he answers in the best way every time. So pray with your heart. If you're struggling with motivation, ask for more of the Spirit. John 7 says, anyone who thirsts, come drink. And I will give him everlasting life, waters of everlasting life that make you thirst and thirst more, that satisfy you and make you want more. That if you're struggling with motivation, I sympathize with you. There have been periods of my life where prayer, it just was hard and it just was confusing. And then other periods that felt like streams flowed in the desert and mighty currents rushed into my soul. And I want for each of us to feel the water of God running through our soul, nurturing those houseplants to be monsteras and magnolias. But whatever you need, what you need is God Himself most. So I want to invite you, church, something that the Lord Laid on my heart a couple weeks ago, I guess. To just pray for revival every single day. I love our church. I love everything's going on. I love my life. I love everything that's going on, the ups and downs. I love it all. But why would we not ask for more of God? I want more of him. And it says that he gives us the Holy Spirit. God's not reluctant. And I don't even totally know what that means other than praying for revival, that more of God would be in my life and in my heart and that God would even overwhelm me. I think that's what revival is. When God becomes so real to us that it starts to overwhelm us by his spirit. I invite you to pray that prayer, to just say, God, I love you and I want more of you.